The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Yeah, so I entitled the message Surviving and Enjoying a Life of Vanity. It's, you know, it was a little more uh, play on words than my original topic, but... Because the book of Ecclesiastes, to some people, it's filled with wisdom. You hear the people quoting things like what we read earlier. There's pieces that get often quoted. And then there's a lot of the other stuff that people just gloss right over. Don't know what that is. To others, they read it and they, like David, you know, get quite confused. They find it kind of, you know, maybe even contradictory at times. <clears throat> However, we find throughout the book that we are told to be joyful. So it would do us well to better understand what we are being told in this seemingly complex book. So this morning, I wish to kind of just crack open the door, take a look at some of the key points. I think there's some key points that will help us to understand the book as a whole, and that's kind of what we're going to be hitting on, that hopefully will provide some tools for getting a little bit more out of the joy that is mentioned in Ecclesiastes. Now, the book itself can be divided into four subsections, most would say. You've got Ecclesiastes 1.2 through 2.26, which would be the first section where we find Solomon's experience revealing that there is nothing within the competence or power of man that can bring true satisfaction. Then you go into section 2, three, which is chapter 3.1 through 5.20, that shows God is sovereign over everything. And it's also in this section that it deals with the objections to such a doctrine. Something is much needed today for sure. Section 3 goes from chapter 6-1 to 8-15, where Solomon carefully applies the doctrine of absolute sovereignty of God, explaining that it is by and through God alone that man can enjoy the vanity of the world, and that without him the world is simply filled with an ongoing vexation of spirit for men. And then section 4, which goes from chapter 8, 16 to 12, 14, Solomon removes various obstacles and discouragements and addresses a variety of practical issues. Now, before we jump into any of these verses, there are two key phrases that we have to deal with, two refrains that are repeated over and over that we really need to properly understand if we're going to really benefit from what's in this book. They appear through all four sections. And without understanding them, the book indeed would be like stumbling through the dark in a maze of disjointed, sometimes contradictory-sounding statements. Now, the first phrase is, under the sun. It occurs numerous times. It's only found in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used to mean this life, life on the planet, the visible life that we see and live above ground. It's ground-level observation point from which we live. This book really, in general, is only dealing with issues of life that we live, that we see, that we experience in this physical realm above ground and under the sun. It is a life from our viewpoint and observation. This book is not seeking to reveal any grand, deep theological revelations about spiritual realm truths or anything along that line. Now, the second refrain that is mentioned that needs noticing is the end. And this is one that's important that's often missed. And it's the repeated mention of the gift of God. In essence, the book of Ecclesiastes hammers home these points, making it clear that while all mankind is born and live a life in turmoil under the sun, 
that to some of them God gives the gift of wisdom and joy that makes this vanity more livable. Now, after the opening verse of the book, we are hit with the concept that is yet another term that is often misunderstood but absolutely necessary to grasping the whole book. Verse 2 hits us with, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So what is vanity? This is where we have to be clear because of our modern readers. But for many, they apply the modern definition of the term and they believe it to speak of absolute meaninglessness. But that's not what Solomon is stating in this term at all. The usage is best understood as an impossible to understand repetitiveness. You cleaned the house yesterday, today it's a mess. (laughs) You washed the dishes, here they are dirty again. It's a never-ending cycle that amounts to very little in the end. There's no permanence, there's no real achievement. It's a temporary, vicious cycle of repetitiveness. That's the vanity. The word used is hebel, or however you want to pronounce it properly, and oftentimes is used to refer to a wisp, a vapor, a puff of air that disappears. The world and life is a wisp, a dust particle drifting in the sunbeam that no matter how hard you try, you cannot grasp or attain it. Verse 4 shows us an example of this cycle when it tells us that generations of people come and go one group of people eventually replacing another. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And rarely, if ever, are the former things remembered by the newcomers. As he says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Yet underneath, the earth remains and the cycle continues. This is the vanity of life under the sun. From our viewpoint, the sun sets and rises, repeating each and every day, and we come to expect it to continue. That same sun that we see was also seen by Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Paul, Martin Luther, John Calvin, even Joe Biden, whether he knows it or not. Um, This is the vanity that Solomon is explaining. This is the toil of living life under the sun. This is what appears futile to most men. But Solomon tells us that the gift of God to those who fear him is the joy given that will allow us to enjoy life amidst this vanity. Another modern use of vanity that we must get past is a definition that tends to imply that something is empty. This is not the case, again, that Solomon is making. Some translations may actually say meaningless, but that is the wrong impression. Life is not meaningless. It is not empty. It is full and has much meaning. So when read properly, this book ends up being a book of profound optimism. Everything in life, everything under the sun is vanity, but God gives. And what is vanity about it? But what is vanity about it is how life under the sun is not something that we can grasp or figure out in so much of our understanding of the ins and outs or the whys of things happening the way they do. It defies our attempts to comprehend and control it. Men tackle life thinking there is something new they can do, something that can give them that desired lasting satisfaction that they crave in life. They work and strive for more because more will be better, they assume. Solomon is addressing that idea in this book. To lack contentment and continually chase after more in life is vanity, a never-ending vapor that cannot be grasped. 
So for those who wish to pursue it, Solomon says to come along and see what he, the wisest man on earth, has discovered to be the case. What is the advantage gained by human labor and work? That is the question. In chapter 2, Solomon lays out what is really a key foundational point that needs to be grasped in order to see many other points made throughout this book. In the whole of chapter 2, he lays out all of the avenues that he pursued in life to find this eluding purpose. He tried pleasure, laughter, alcohol, large houses, farms, pools, servants, wealth, music, concubines, knowledge, work, and much more. He sought purpose in all of these things, and in the end, he makes this very important point. But before reading the important point, we need to clarify a slightly confusing translational issue that you may find in your Bible. In chapter 2, verse 24, we are told, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in this toil. However, saying that there is nothing better is not quite accurate according to some commentators. The word better is not here in the original, but has been inserted because other places in this book, nothing better appears together, so they assume and they add it here. A better understanding of what Solomon is saying is found in versions like the Young's Literal, which states that there is nothing good in a man, as in there is nothing inherently good in man. So this foundational section is best understood as There is nothing inherently good in a man that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, the enjoyment. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So Solomon is telling us that within man himself, there is nothing that makes him any better than the next man in the ability to deserve or find joy in eating, drinking, or any other vanity under the sun. No one is born differently to where one has an advantage over another in this ability. That in order to find joy in these things, it has to be a given gift from God. And apart from him, there is only vanity, the vanity of gathering and collecting things that get left behind when the person is gone. If you get nothing else from this message, take this key point away. Life under the sun is repetitive vanity, and only to those who fear the Lord does the Lord give the wisdom to actually find joy and pleasure in all of this vanity that occurs under the sun. So while God is the one who gives all things in general to all men, he is also the only one that can give the gift of being able to enjoy and be content in all that has been given. Now, you all might remember this because actually I quoted some of this message in like September of last year. In this particular portion, I quoted uh, in in a message then on uh, on God. It's the analogy given by Douglas Wilson, he's a modern author, who says that God gives to all men plenty of cans of peaches. They can collect all the cans of peaches they want. But only to those who fear God does God give the can opener to enjoy. (laughs) To enjoy them. Thank you, Alexa. (laughs) Alexa is inserting a translational error here. 
So yeah, anyway, so man can collect all the cans of peaches he wishes, but God gives a can opener to enjoy them. That's kind of the thrust of what we're saying. It's that God has to give you the ability to enjoy these vanity things. Those in the world are always looking for something new, something to make the ceaseless, repetitive vanity go away, something to find joy in, and yet they never do. When they seem to find it, it's only temporary, and it is passed on once they are gone. It's not passed on once they're gone. The wise man sees this. He knows the vanity and limitations in the world. And God gives him the ability to yet enjoy the vanity and the limitations. This is the point that Solomon ends up at by the end of the second chapter, which is the end of section one of the book. But to get there, he also describes the world as full of unhappy business, or as some translations put it, sore travail or grievous tasks. And he points out that the crooked cannot be made straight by God. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted." Note that he tells us this unhappy business of life is given by God. So much for the health and wealth gospel mentality of some preachers who believe that God only gives ceaseless abundance. And he later tells us the reason these things are crooked and cannot be made straight. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The wise realize that God is sovereign in all things. The turmoil of this life is from God. And the crooked things in this world are also from God. And there is nothing that natural man can do in himself to change things. To struggle in life, to do so, is just attempting to no avail, to push against the unchanging vanity. Again, vanity being that incomprehensible repetition of life. Unfortunately, many in modern Christianity around us have reversed the very truth made clear throughout the book like this. Instead of a sovereign God in control of the chaos, they preach and teach of a God who sits on high, seeing all the crooked messes down here and just wringing his hands and shedding tears over it because he's powerless to help. Whenever some public disaster or calamity takes place, ministers are quick to divert responsibility away from God and put him in a place of being heartbroken over this mess. Instead of God being the source of it, it is just an accident or natural disaster outside of his control. Or worse yet, this calamity is because of man who in his own free will has made crooked something that God cannot straighten. We need more ministers to understand as Amos did and ask, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Instead of acknowledging the Lord as being in control over all of the crookedness we see and in wanting to make God blameless, it leads to a doctrine of chance, circumstance, and accidents. And living in a world like that, gives cause for more thoughts of vanity and hopelessness because the world is in uncontrolled chaos. The Bible is clear in teaching that Yahweh is indeed in control and all good and bad things come from His hand. Such a doctrine takes away the hopelessness and gives comfort, for we know that we are not living in a world of just random, uncontrolled chaos. In this day and age with the political current political climate, the utter corruption, the public evil, just the stuff that drives us crazy, it's so rampant, many Christians are stressed, worried, and freaking out. Some of them think that the end of the world is upon us. We're obviously living in the last days. 
Without a biblical view of the sovereignty of God, is there really anything to hope or take rest in? Of course, the position of an all-controlling sovereign God is rejected because then the masses cry out for justice from a God whose actions make no sense to them. Why would a loving God do this or that thing, for instance? So to them, it is better to think that nothing controls any of this, that there is no purpose behind anything, and to them, that is somehow more comforting. Not biblical, but comforting. While the chasing after the vapor of things is just life under the sun for us all, the gift of God does not make the seeming meaninglessness go away, but it does make the vanity more enjoyable. In this first subsection of the book, Solomon shows us that life under the sun is an inscrutable repetition and that all natural experiences lead to emptiness. And his conclusion is that satisfaction cannot come from anything within man's own power, but it is only available as a gift from the totally sovereign God. In the second division, which is chapters 3 through 5, we find Solomon dealing with questions and objections to the idea of God's absolute sovereignty. Chapter 3 contains two sections of the book which we are, in my experience, which are, in my experience, the most often quoted and often misapplied also. And they say, they're meant to say things that they are not actually saying. In verses 1 through 8, we have the section of the, the to everything there is a point of time, which we read earlier. That is often quoted all the time. But before we delve into these things, let us look at the conclusion of this second section, like we did for the first, because it's good to know where Solomon ends up in order to better understand what he is saying as he journeys to get there. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun, the few days of this life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God had given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So as mentioned, this section deals with the objections and issues with God's absolute sovereignty. And he ends up by summing, summing up by saying that everything given to man is from God. Now, as we return to the first part of this second section, we find that in God's sovereign plan, there is a time for everything. The days of our lives are in God's hands, and he has allotted a time for everything. And after ending this section of time, he states, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. So yes, there is a time to be born. Yes, there's a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh. All of that quote that we hear and we read earlier. For these are all times given to man by God. For God makes everything beautiful in his timing, and his actions are beyond the discovery of man. If what is given is something good, God has given it. If it is travail, God has also given it. God has given all things, and it is forever. All of these things, when viewed from our standpoint, everything under the sun is vanity. 
It is incomprehensible repetitiveness in our world around us. But remember, this book is not providing any spiritual revelations about the workings of God or the theological reasonings behind it. It is simply looking at life above the dirt and under the sun and how we, as living creatures, experience and view the things around us. We do not and indeed cannot understand much beyond the consistent repetitiveness. And in verse 14, he tells us why things are this way from God. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. Hopefully we see that God has allotted a time for everything. He gives man things to be busy with. He makes everything beautiful in its time. His actions are beyond discovery by man, and they are forever. And the reason for all of this, so that man might fear him. Therefore, a man who reads without trembling has forgotten the living God. So putting the there is a time for this and time for that statements back into their context, we find that these are not ways of ordering life given to us. They are not our marching orders for life. They are descriptions a description of God's determinations and the allotted portions in our lives that he gives us. We are not being told that at this time in life we do this and at that time in life we do that. We are being told that we have been placed in this world that is not of our fashion or control, a world with repetitive cycles that are not of our doing, and they come from God in his timing, a God whom we should fear. In all of this and every aspect of our lives, the Lord God is exhaustively sovereign. This is the foundation of Solomon's argument, which means he relates it as the ultimate foundation for all possible intelligent joy. This is a hard doctrine, but denial of it does not remove the light and darkness or the peace and the evil. It simply removes the possibility of finding any solace in it. For centuries past and even present, men argue about this topic. But discussing God's words and his ways often leads men to attempt to find out and understand God's ways, to rectify things for their own understanding. Yet we already saw that Solomon tells us it is futile to seek to do so. In verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has made everything beautiful and has placed eternity into our hearts. Yet even with that, he has made it impossible for us to find out his works and actions from eternity. Men may bicker and fight over why God might do this, that, or the other thing. But in reality, man can never truly know. The believing believing response to this should be to throw up one's hands in faith, not in despair, but to to not worry about such things and to go about living life and having a good time and joy that God has given. This faith must be in the one God from whom all knowledge and joy comes from. We must start with the God who rules all things, the one who makes all things beautiful. We must worship this one God who does all things for his ultimate glory. You may ask, he controls even the sin and the evil around us, even the monstrous and the ugly? The answer is yes, for remember that the list of God's determining determinations also includes his allotting a time to heal and to kill, 
a time of war and hate, of mourning and laughter. We seek to only give God credit for the good. Solomon knows he's the author of it all, and he controls it all perfectly. People who want to buck against the thought of God's absolute sovereignty do so because their pride does not want their autonomy to be stripped or restricted. In the chaotic world and political upheaval clown world that we currently live in or experiences, experiencing, where are we left in life if we chalk it up to being events outside of God's control? Does that provide comfort? Should we then live our lives in fear and panic, stressing about the things out of our control? No, we are to do our duty to do what is within our power and do so knowing that in the end, the justice of God will complete whatever it is that his will is working out at this time in these scenarios. Those who wish to say that God does not do such evil, that God does not wield a wicked tool, come to that conclusion based on their own flawed arguments and not from Scripture. The Bible tells us God is holy, but also that he wields the wicked in his hand like an axe. God used the wicked Assyrians to judge the Jews. He used Absalom Absalom to sleep with David's concubines. He used Judas to portray the Lord. He used Herod, Pontius Pilate, and all the Jews to condemn and crucify his son. This is but a very short list of such things that many Christians want to deny and ignore coming from God. The second portion of chapter 3 that I have often seen abused is verse 19 through 21, which states, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. This verse is taken as if it is revealing a theologically accurate portrayal of the afterlife in some fashion. People will use this to even say that the Bible teaches there's no existence after death. Or that man and animals are the same in the end, spiritually. Or that after death, the person just ceases. This would be in opposition usually against the ancient Hebrew concept of the existence in the intermediate state of Sheol after physical death. Time and time again, when I have entered into a discussion on the historicity of Sheol as a realm of the dead, this verse gets thrown out as if it is some kind of a concrete theological statement about the spiritual realm of life after death in general. My answer to the point is that the context they are ignoring here, this book by Solomon, again, is about life under the sun. These writings are only revealing things we see and can perceive with our eyes and that we comprehend from our standpoint above ground. He's not seeking to discuss anything about the beyond life, spiritual truth, anything along that line. He's simply saying that in the course of living on this planet, the fate of animals and men is the same. Both live in a repetitive cycle, both eventually die, and both end up in the same place, the dust from which they came. This is pertaining simply to the physical aspects of life under the sun. And to answer the question, who knows whether the spirit goes up or down? God knows. But outside of him, man does not know and cannot discover the answer from life naturally. This is all that's being said here, that from what we see with our senses, men and animals live and die and return to the dust in the same fashion, period. 
To use these verses to imply anything negative about any Hebrew concept of an afterlife is just sad and a weak attempt to make any kind of case from it. The one tidbit of information later in this book that is usually also brought up in connection with this topic is that of chapter 12, 7, which says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Two things worth noting here is what is said and what is not said. What we are told is that there is a spirit that survives after the body dies. This is a problem for many who want to believe that there is no separate part, no soul, or whatever you want to call the whole nefesh argument about it being inseparable. It kind of throws a wrench in that. But while this is not being used to make a theological case from the book, it can be added to the long list of other verses that show that the general historical concept was that there was indeed something that separates and survives after the outer physical body dies. But what we are not told is, what, go, what does it go back to God for? It does not say it goes to be in heaven. It does not say it goes back to some big nirvana pool of spirits. It simply says it returns to God who gave it. The Jewish Targum adds to this verse that the spirit returns to God who gave it, that it may stand in judgment before the Lord. Again, this is not written to reveal some deep theological truth of the afterlife. This is more of just a general statement, most likely based on just a common assumption of the ancient concept that the spirit survives. For the sake of time now, we're going to jump to the third division of the book, which covers chapter 6 through chapter 8, 15, where Solomon applies the doctrine that it is God alone that gives the ability to enjoy the vanity under the sun. From our human experience, we see inequalities and injustices in this world. Given enough thought on this matter, we would have to consider that it comes from the way that God governs the world. If we spend more time dwelling on this, we may conclude, though we would doubtfully ever vocalize it, that God seems somewhat unjust in the way things are being run. We see the wrong kinds of people being blessed by God as we view it, while others are not getting their fair share, or at least what we think their fair share would be. However, there is more to the story than we tend to realize. Solomon tells us, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. We see a man who's been blessed with much wealth, and we think, well, that's kind of an injustice. He doesn't deserve that. However, what we don't know is whether God has given that person the power to enjoy that wealth, or is it a stressful burden put upon him by God? He goes on a few verses later to say, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We work to eat and eat to work. It is a repetitive cycle. The rich may toil and stress for more wealth, and yet without the ability of God to enjoy it, it is a vanity and vexation upon their life. It does not add meaning to life, nor does it add true joy to them. This has been revealed time after time after time if you listen to celebrities at all. I've heard testimonies after testimonies from where they have achieved fame and fortune, everything they thought they wished for, Yet they were lacking joy. They felt empty. They felt unfulfilled. They suffered from depression. We've seen people, you know, you're like, how did that guy commit suicide? He owned the world, you know. But anyway, loneliness, it, it's, it doesn't bring any peace for that. 
Yet you also find many testimonies on the other side of the coin, where people live with very little, and yet they have lived joyful, thankful lives in the service of God and to others. They've had what they needed. They were content with what was provided. God knows the person, and He knows the vanity of wealth, and He allots a portion to each, knowing how it will affect those to whom it is given to. While many of us may wish we had more, we must be thankful for what we have been given, knowing that God has not given us a portion that would be a burden or remove our joy. The point is, the limits of prosperity are set by God, and prosperity is not necessarily a good thing. We often want to simply look and say that material blessings are always a blessing, and that adversity and lack of things is always a curse. But that is not necessarily the case. We cannot tell God's uh, disposition towards a man based on his outward condition. A man, Christian or not, who has been given much riches is not necessarily to be considered blessed of God. If God gives great riches to a man, but no taste buds to enjoy what they have, then it is in fact a sore affliction upon them from the Lord. The health and wealth preachers of this day are seriously confused on the point on this point, of course. The point is, are we to judge based on who has the most toys or on who has the most joy given to them by their toys? The fool cannot enjoy the goodness of the earth, yet the wise man can, not because of anything within him, but because he is the recipient of a gift. We have to understand that all of these things are allotted out based on God's will and plan. And again, this is a plan that we do not and indeed cannot know the details of while we live under the sun as we do. From our perception, we can only see what we are seeing and experiencing. We see what happens to be the, what happens appears to be the good and the bad as it seems to be playing out by, in those around us. We see how things are around us, whether good or bad, and we react. This past year plus, the world has become a big mess. Within all of this mess are the circles of news outlets from all sides and the confusion of not knowing who to believe. It is a very, it's very easy to look at the current life under the sun and have very negative thoughts. But that is exactly what Solomon says not to do. He says, say not. Why, why were the former days better than these? Why was 2019 better than 2020? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. I'm sure at one time or another, most of us have said something about the good old days, when life was simpler, when things around us were not as openly wicked as they are now. This is not something we should be anxious over, for we cannot make straight these things. As he continues, saying, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. God makes both the good and the bad, and we are not able to discover his way and should not spend our days being anxious over why things are this way, nor are we able to make straight the crooked ways made by God. And he's made some things pretty crooked right now, but anyway. (laughs) Yes, we should do our part to live wisely, raise our children to be to do likewise, work in ways that we can around us to make things better, live our lives in love for others while upholding the truth ourselves. Beyond that, we are told to use the wisdom and gift from God that gives us the ability to see the vanity and yet still 
eat, drink, and enjoy life. God is a governor of all, and therefore we should not long for the good old days, nor should we be overly concerned that this or that bad turn of events, concerned with this or that bad turn of events. As we've already mentioned, God has allotted a time for this and a time for that. And so these times, which we see as bad times, are times allotted by God for His purpose that we'll never figure out. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? This is commonly heard inquiry for sure. And Solomon tells us that we will not discover the ways of God. So the question is not resolvable under the sun. Both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity come from the Lord, and we must remember that even as Job instructed we must remember that even as Job instructed his wife. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Um, receive evil from God? Hmm. How such a message would not go over very well in a lot of modern churches. But all things are a gift from God, and though we may never know the reason why, we must trust the fact that indeed God is in control, and all things indeed work together for good according to His plan, and not ours. Solomon even saw this issue in his time, saying, In my life, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The point is, for those of us living here under the sun, what we might think is fair or just is not necessarily what God has in His plans. If we try to judge God based on what we see and what we think is fair, then we are worshiping a God of our own imagination. Solomon goes on in chapter 8 to look at this issue a bit further of, of the lives of the wise and the wicked. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Yes, wickedness at times does reign. Yes, the wicked are not always judged or taken care of as we may wish they were. Again, God's plans are not always in line with our desires. But he says that, yes, it will be well for those who fear the Lord. And the works of the wicked will not prolong his days before beyond God's plans. God is the ultimate judge, and the wicked will not be found guiltless. But that is not an issue that we who live here and now under this sun are to worry ourselves with. At times, injustice may seem to be triumphant. We see what's going on around us day after day recently. Sometimes good men lose and wicked men win. Just as he points out in verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said also, that is also vanity. So while the victories of the wicked and the apparent losses of the righteous do occur, even that is just vanity. It is a repetitive cycle of incomprehensible reasoning that is put into place and controlled by God. So what are we to do about it? Are we to scream and complain and fight and push back and spend our lives in in constant anxiety over the apparent evil around us? According to Solomon, we are not. But instead, we are to eat, drink, and be joyful for all the days we are given under the sun, 
as we are told in the very next verse. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Do not let the vanity of life's repetitiveness drive away the joy that we are to live under with the wisdom that God gives us. We may seek and strive to know the plans and ways of God and seek to understand why the world is like it is and fight the changed or crooked ways, but we cannot. To live life in this kind of constant stressful struggle and frustration is itself vanity and utterly useless. Solomon says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. God's plans under the sun are not something anyone can find out. And we are not to struggle in life to attempt to do so. God is in control, and he tells us to have joy and enjoy the life that he has given while we have it. Men who argue over the sovereignty of God, over the sovereignty of God issues, are always prone to be led into discussions of why would God do this or do that. But that's futile, for we're never going to know these things. Arguments continue as Christians and non-Christians alike try to reason, saying things like, if God is all loving, then why does he do blah, 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 whatever they want to fight about? These discussions and arguments continue, and Christians act like they have proper answers. But Solomon says, even the wise do not know the works of God always. Solomon is, of course, not the only one in Scripture declaring this about God. I am sure many of you know of other similar tellings from and about God, things like, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, Isaiah 55. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty, Job 11? Oh, the depths of the, rich, the, depths of the riches of, and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. Romans 11. From what we can view from the life we live under the sun, God has made it possible to see, has not made it possible to see or fully understand what his plans are or what he is doing. And we are not to spend our time trying to decipher such things. In other words, an external blessing or cursing is not a sign that I can appeal to to determine if God loves me or hates me. As he goes on to say in chapter 9, 1 and following, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. 
It rains on the faithful and the unfaithful alike. The sun shines on both of them also. Trials and travails come to both, as do blessings. Solomon refers to this frustrating fact as an evil that is done under the sun. Our response should therefore be to give honor to God as God and give Him thanks in all situations. In light of this, Solomon tells us, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Life under the sun and the days that you are given are a gift from God, and we are to acknowledge that and live our lives accordingly. We are to eat our bread, and we are to do it with joy. We are to drink our wine with a merry heart. And yes, the word for wine, incidentally, is yayin, or alcoholic drink. Uh, uh. Uh. Our dress should be constantly festive, and we should take care of ourselves. We are to rejoice in all things in our silly lives because we acknowledge that they are our portion. And while we never understand the whys behind our portion, we put our faith in the God who gives us those portions, and we enjoy His gifts. God has already approved our obedience, so with gratitude we are to eat our bread, drink our wine, dress in white, and love our spouse for the time we have been given under the sun. Control of all things under the sun is by the hand of God, as are the outcomes of all things. As he goes on to mention in verse 11 and following, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those who with, with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time. The outcome of things is not always dependent on the participant. The swiftest person may not always win the race. The strongest may not always win the battle. These are all affected by time and chance. Now, by using the term chance here, not referring to our idea of a philosophical randomness like we would normally use it today, the term used here means incident, as in something that happens and comes from something external and outside to us. For Solomon to say something happens by chance is likened to saying that it was caused by something outside of our knowledge and understanding. We may make plans and set everything up with certain expected results, but in the end it may still not happen quite as we had planned it or desired. For the faithful, this end result is acknowledged as coming from God. His hand is behind the results. The results of all our endeavors are completely in the hands of God, and no amount of preparedness on our part can 100% control or guarantee the results outside of his plan. Again, we prepare and we live faithfully, and whatever comes, we take from God, as from God. And we live our silly lives for however long he gives us, 
while we do not know how long that will be. Solomon continues, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. Now we are not to act as a hyper-Calvinist might, claiming God will do whatever regardless of what we do, so why even try? We do not simply live with no concerns for life, no morality, no, you know, worry, don't worry about any justice in the world. But we are to work while there is time. We are to live and enjoy while there is time. We are to be thankful while there is time. For we do not know the limit of our time or when death may suddenly come upon us. And as the book has sought to instill in us all along, like other things, our death is not something we are to be anxious about, for it too is in God's hands. From chapter 10 and beyond, we are hit with the barrage of Proverbs from Solomon. And there are a couple I'd like to look at briefly, starting with chapter 11, 1 through 2. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Now, this verse is not feed, not talking about feeding the ducks. He's not throwing the bread on the waters to feed the animals like we might think. One of my old farmer Christian friends used to always say um, that when a man gets into real farming, much of the Bible begins to make a lot more sense. And the idea being that the men in the culture that produced the Bible were very agrarian. And there's much symbolism used in there for an agrarian understanding that we may not even understand. And this, this section is an example of that. When you plant your crops upon the muddy or water-covered ground, they take root and are found by you many days later to produce a plentiful harvest. Of course, this is being used symbolic. This is symbolism here. What's being said is to be generous in your giving. Spread your seeds upon the waters of mankind, and it will come back to you. Verse 2 makes it clearer, clearer for what is being said. Give a portion of what you have to seven. No, wait, maybe give it to eight. Give, for in the day when disaster happens on the earth or in your life, you will have grateful friends to help you when you're in need. In other words, let your hospitality and your giving be extensive. Give to many or even very many, for you do not know what problems they may, that may be coming that you may have need of in the future, and you will find that the hospitality returns to you likewise. Now, here, in, this may be a hard pill to swallow for most of us in this day and age. We've always been taught to save, to set aside for a rainy day, to put some aside for tough times. Because of that, we tend to be less charitable. Solomon here is speaking against such a view. He is not saying to give it all away. He is, saving, he is saying, give a portion. Be charitable to as many as you can, and it will most likely come back to you when it's needed. The argument that covetous men make about putting away because bad times may come is the reverse argument that Solomon says the wise must make. It is because we know bad times will come, therefore we should give and be generous in our giving. Again, I quote Doug Wilson as I did earlier, I like the way he puts it. Some say life is uncertain, so we should eat desserts first. Solomon says here, because life is uncertain, we should give the dessert away. <laughs> I could go on and on giving examples of this idea as we hear as presented in the New Testament, but we'll keep going. I will mention just one instance where we are plainly told that giving to those in need is the same as giving to God directly, 
and it was commended. In Matthew 25, we are told of what is commonly referred to as a great white throne judgment. The nations are gathered. The people separate into sheep on the right, goats on the left, and the pronounced judgments against them. And to the righteous sheep, he said to come, inherit the kingdom. And what was the inheritance based upon according to this section of verse? For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. In response, the sheep were dumbfounded and asked, When did we ever do these things to you? And I'm sure you know what the response is. He said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And to the goats, of course, he said the exact opposite. And they were cast out because they had not done any of these things to other people. And therefore, they had not done it to him. So it seems that this type of generous lifestyle is kind of a key concern to God. And after, then after all of his discussions on the good, the bad, and the vanity, Solomon begins to close out his writings, summing things up to some degree. He reminds us to have joy, to rejoice in all of our days, to enjoy the sunshine, and to know that the days of darkness will be many, for they are all vanity. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. He tells the young people to rejoice in the days of their youth, but always keeping their eye and heart on the Lord. He tells them to remember the Lord in the days of their youth and take great joy in those days before the evil days of older age comes upon them. Rejoice, O young men, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The young grow old, the old die, and they are replaced by more young ones. And the young grow old, and the young die. And they are replaced by more young ones. And the cycle continues, and it continues. The endless cycle, the vanity of life. He tells a metaphor in chapter 12, 2 through 7, of the body growing old and then dying. And he ends up the section by saying the cycle is vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. In all of this, we are to come away from this book learning that satisfaction is not within us organically. The world is full of stuff, and it's all just emptiness. It is God who, in His sovereign choice, gives the ability to find satisfaction and to enjoy the vanity, this repetitive cycle of life. We are to know this is vanity, but understand it is God's unknowable plan, and therefore we are to take joy in Him through it all. All of man's feverish activity and labor is Hebel, a vapor, an incomprehensible cycle of action, vanity. What does man accomplish? What advantage does it bring to us? In all of man's work and labor, he changes nothing. He controls nothing. He successfully manipulates nothing that matters. 
Solomon has here presented us with the big game of good cop, bad cop. Solomon is a good cop who tells us over and over again that it is futile to fight against the bad cop. The bad cop is the real nature of life under the sun. We fight and toil to gain an advantage or leverage against the bad cop. But all that we do is vanity, a vapor of no substance or lasting effect against the bad cop. Solomon tells us not to not resist, but to confess to the bad cop. The good news is that while the bad cop is trying to get us to confess, he is not doing so in order to condemn us, but to actually save us. We must not resist the sovereign God, but we must confess him as being exactly that. Seek to live life in the wisdom of knowing that and seek the gift he gives to allow us to find true joy in this vaporous life under the sun. Solomon is writing to pass judgment on man's misguided endeavors at attempting to master life. He is pointing out life's mysteries and limits, seeking to remove the false and illusory hopes and replace them with confidence based on the joy of God's gift alone. Everything goes on the same as it has because everything is outside of man's control. Unbelievers do not accept that fact. But faithful Christians who have acquired wisdom know that it is true. He has given us a set number of days under the sun in which we are to work hard and have joy in what we have. We are to have joy in our youth before the days of old overtake us. We are to live a generous and giving lifestyle, being a blessing to others as unto God. And he ends with these final words. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So go forth. Stress not about the repetition and incomprehensible plan unfolding around you. Stress not over the downward spiral that is currently happening in the clown world around us today. These two are but the cycle of these also are the cycle of allotted times from Yahweh. And while we are to be diligent and do our duty during these times, we will not make straight the paths that the Lord has called and currently make crooked. We are to take heart and find joy, trusting in the sovereign God who is behind it all, working in ways that we will never discover. Seek his wisdom the gift from Yahweh that enables joy among the vanity of the life under the sun that we live in. Love others. Be generous with what the Lord has allotted you, whether it is a lot or it is a little. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much for the wisdom that Solomon has shared. Help us, Lord, to understand the words from other cultures that are being brought forth to us, that we may grasp and understand the words that you have preserved for us. Help us to live in honoring of everything that you've given to us. Help us to understand the vanity and yet still find joy in you and all around us. We thank you so much for the blessings. We thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would just touch us more as we read it. And we thank you so much for these things. Amen. Amen.